Today, joining me on the podcast, we have 209 marathoner, the 10th fastest American marathoner ever, aspiring pro runner, and host of the Division Three Glory Days podcast, Noah Jardy. Noah, how are you doing? I'm good, man. Thanks for having me. So Noah, when did you first get involved with the sport of running? Uh, I started in high school, my freshman year of high school. Um, I played a lot of basically all the other sports uh, leading up to that, but I knew my dad had been a pretty decent runner back in high school and ran a little bit of uh, cross country in college. And so I, it was always kind of at the back of my mind, but I'd never really run um, in any kind of constructive way before. And so I just waited for the school year, year to start and my dad dropped me off and had practice. And I remember going for like a three mile run, you know, in the woods near my high school and just kind of, you know, chilling at the back of the group, just being like, Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I think mm -hmm. I can do this. And I wasn't taking it super seriously at first, but that's uh, yeah, that's kind of how I started. How, how was your high school career? It was okay. I, w I went to a really small, um, I went to a really small school. And so there wasn't much talent on the team and it wasn't really until my senior year that we had a head coach who kind of knew mm -hmm. about running, you know, it was mostly just kind of the, the gym teacher or, yeah. you know, the, the substitute gym teacher who was coaching uh -huh. cross country. And so, yeah, it, uh, it definitely got off to a slow start. I mean, if I was running three miles a day, that was mm -hmm. pretty that was pretty great you know like <laughs> it, it, if we got like race distance in at a practice like 5k <laughs> that would be like ideal and so you know it, it like you know I was probably running in the 1830s or whatever my freshman year and then by my senior year I started to have some success I I my per, my personal best from high school was 1637 for 5k and so I, I never qualified individually or with the team uh, for the state meet, but I definitely year over year saw enough improvement to keep me interested, even if I wasn't like a high-end performer. Yeah. So then you decided to attend DePaul University. Can you talk a little bit about what attracted you to DePaul and why you ended up going there? Yeah. Um, getting to DePaul was kind of an accident and in some ways, I, uh, I didn't know that I wanted to run in college necessarily. Um, my, my head coach in my senior year of high school was a DePaul alum and had run there. And so he kind of planted the seed. I didn't really know that division three existed and I didn't think I was a good enough for, I was not a good enough runner to run at a high power division one program. And so a few factors got me to DePaul. One, I, um, I was awarded a scholarship um, through uh, Eli Lilly, which is like a pharmaceutical company or whatever, um, that allowed me to attend any any college or university in Indiana where I'm from uh, for free. And so all of a sudden that opened up, you know, these small liberal arts schools that, you know, were out of reach financially for my family before that. And those schools are also division three schools to a large extent. And so you know, my path without that scholarship, I probably would have gone to Indiana University and kind of forgotten about running and just mm. partied with my friends. But instead, I, you know, the D3 route was opened up and then just kind of through process of elimination, um, you know, because there's a million div small division three schools in the Midwest, I, I found my way to DePauw and, you know, thought that that would be my best chance to be on a competitive team. And, uh, mm. 
I, I, I hand wrote the application to DePaul, which is probably crazy, especially for someone as young as you to like imagine handwriting a college application. Uh-huh. They, were, they, they, because I didn't care. I didn't want to go there because it was all the, it had a huge Greek system and I wasn't interested in joining yeah. a fraternity. And so I was like, whatever, I'll fill this out, make everybody happy. Mm-hmm. but I ended up going there. So <laughs> I still don't totally understand why, but I'm glad it happened. Uh-huh. So looking back, imagine, so you said you're like high school 5k PR was around like 1630. Let's yeah. say you ran faster in high school and you got clo- a little bit closer to your top end potential in high school. And you were good enough to run at those division one schools, such as Indiana university, like you mentioned, do you, how do you think that would have changed um, the rest of your career and your future if you decided to go to maybe a bigger, more competitive school? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting thought experiment because, you know, mm-hmm. the way my career has actually panned out, you know, I was um, I was 26 years old when I signed my first professional contract and, you know, I'm 30. I just ran my personal best in the marathon. And so my mm-hmm. career has kind of been slow to to play out i guess and it's taken me a while to reach yeah. what i believe is my high end potential and so let's say hypothetically i did go to iu and i ended up being uh you know 1355 k or in a d1 level really young i mean it could have gone one or t- one of two ways one i could have graduated and i mean and just like you know, hit my potential a lot earlier. Maybe I would have run 209 at 24 years old or whatever. But the flip side of that is, you know, being in a high pressure, high performance environment so young, I think you run the risk of kind of burning out on it. Mm-hmm. Um, especially knowing my personality, I'm not sure I could have gone all in on running that early in my life and still have been interested in doing it now. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned you signed your first pro contract when you were 26 years old. So post-collegially, what did you end up doing in terms of running? How did, so how did you, you know, what was the story from graduating from small division three school to signing a pro contract? Yeah, a few twists and turns in there. I graduated in 2013 from DePauw. I moved um, to Chicago after that to do an internship. And when that ended, I moved back to Indianapolis and got a job as a, a gardener. And uh, I was running this whole time. You know, I was probably fluctuating between 40 and 60 miles a week, you know, basically doing no workouts, just kind of running because runners run. Um, but, you know, in the back of my mind, I was always wondering if maybe I could have, I could get faster. I didn't really know what that meant, but so I was in Indianapolis, just kind of killing a couple of years working jobs. I started working at a running store. Um, I hired a coach at that time and started seeing some pretty good improvements in my running. Still not like, you know, national caliber or anything like that. But um, I ran 68 minutes for a half marathon and that was, you know, pretty good. I thought that's like five. 14 pace or whatever and I was like damn I just ran 514 pace for 13 miles like that's pretty awesome um and then you know once I I moved to Boulder in 2015 and so I was 25 at that point and I think I was really just starting to ask myself some questions on you know what am I most passionate about um you know what do I want to do with my life and I saw my running potential is still somewhat untapped and I thought 
it would be a worthwhile pursuit to see that all the way through. And I, I, that didn't mean signing a pro contract to me. I didn't think I'd ever make any money running or whatever, but I thought it would be really satisfying to go after that and know someday that like, okay, I gave it my best and I know exactly how good I am. And mm-hmm. so I moved to Boulder and things took off in a way that I hadn't expected. And I ended up improving a lot very quickly. Mm-hmm. So what did that look like for you? Kind of like taking that risk and going all in on running? Um, or I mean, were you just, even all in? I was, I was all in when I moved here to Boulder. I mean, logistically, it was pretty easy. I quit my job. I packed up my car and I just drove out here. I contacted a few coaches. Only one got back to me. That was, uh, that was Richard Hansen. And uh, he's still my coach today, uh, six years later. And so... <laughs> You know, it just, I, I moved here. I got a job at a running store and a gym and mm-hmm. just started running every day and making it my priority. And um, I think I got really lucky in that potential that I thought might be there, like was really there. And once I started being serious about the work and the lifestyle, um, you know, my times just dropped faster than I ever would have imagined. When did you sign your first pro contract and how did this opportunity present itself? I signed with Saucony in the summer of 2017. And so, you know, leading up to that, I was just trying to build my resume of, you know, national caliber times, I guess, because, you know, I was, nobody knew who I knew who I was. Like I, Mm -hmm. I was, I was good at the division three level, but I'd done nothing that was nationally competitive. You know, it's like, (laughs) who was I? I I had nothing. And so, I, I ran 28.20 for 10K, which was a huge personal best. And I made the, uh, the track trials in 2016. And that's where my, my image kind of went viral, I guess. A lot, of know, <laughs> a lot of people know me from that race, which is like fun, but also like kind of annoying <laughs> in a way. And so, and so that was a big thing. And then but the biggest thing was that I ran uh, 61 minutes for the half marathon in New York City. And that was kind of the last thing that was like, cause that was a top 25 all time half at the time when I ran it, I don't think it is anymore. Um, but those performances together, they were like that earned me the attention mm-hmm. of shoe sponsors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned you kind of went viral for, uh, was it like your look, like your hair and your mustache, the rock star kind of vibe? It must have been because it definitely wasn't about my performance because I, I finished uh, last in that race. Like <laughs> I, I was actually like at a doctor getting an MRI earlier this year. And the doctor was like, hey, I know you. You're like a big time runner, right? And I was like, oh, yeah, you know, kind of. And he was like, you just ran really good in something. And I thought he meant the marathon project. And so I was like, yeah, I ran a pretty good marathon. He's like, no, 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 no. It was a track race. And he was talking about the 2016 Olympic trials, <laughs> which, which is funny because people know me from the race, but they don't, they don't, nobody remembers how badly I ran. And so it's kind of fun to look back on it. But yeah, I think it was, it was the long hair and mustache and whatever. I mean, I was standing next to Galen Robb and Bernard Lagat, like those guys, they're very clean cut, you know, and I looked a little different. When did you start rocking this look? Um, I mean, I always had the mustache in college for like important races and my hair was always like kind of long but I guess when I moved to Boulder I stopped cutting it entirely and so most of the time I have it pulled back but for races I, I 
pull it down. And so it, it felt very normal to me. I was surprised that people latched onto that, but you know, I just mm-hmm. kind of went with it, I guess. Mm-hmm. Okay. So moving on to some real business, <laughs> uh, Saucony decided not to review, renew your contract despite recently running a two and nine marathon PR um, in the marathon project, as well as having this fantastic hair and social media presence. Um, you have 15,000 followers on Instagram. Is that right? And, yeah, and you're the, so. you're the host of the Division three glory days podcast. So, and you're, you now identify as an aspiring pro runner. So how did this happen? Yeah, I will correct the kind of narrative of your question a little bit because it's a small difference, but it's important. Okay. Um, I and and this is something that it's not your fault. Like the articles got this wrong. Um, so I, I was offered a contract by Saucony. They did offer to renew it. It was okay. just at a, a level that I thought was unacceptable um, in terms of value. If that make the contract was too low. And so I didn't feel like they offered me a contract commiserate to my value. Um, Does that make sense? Because I feel feel like a lot of people think that athletes just either get resigned or they get dropped, Uh but there, but there is a middle ground where athletes believe they're worth something and the companies don't agree. And so that kind of ended up being my Mm -hmm. situation. And so it, it's not totally sorted out yet i think there's a chance that it could still be rectified but um yeah it's been it's been hard for sure and it's been disappointing i mean so how has that kind of felt for you yeah it's been hard because you know i've identified as a professional runner for i mean since 2017 and everyone has a different, um, idea of what professional runner means. Uh, for me, it means that you're being paid to do it. You know, it means you're representing sponsors and, you know, I still do make my living as a runner. It's just, you know, harder when you don't have that title sponsorship. And so I've had to like kind of reevaluate how I see myself to some extent, um, because I'm not representing a primary sponsor at the moment. And so I think it's been a chance and an opportunity for me is how I'm looking at it now to really like get back in touch with why I decided to run in the first place. And because like I said, when I moved out here, the goal was not to become a professional runner. And so now mm-hmm. it's about, I, w- I was motivated by the fact that I was a sponsored runner and now I need to find motivation and the fact that I want to run faster for me. Um, and so that's a process I'm working through. I mean, I still would welcome a title sponsor and I'm still hopeful that that happens, but in the interim, yeah, I just have to find, reconnect with my original motivations. Mm -hmm. If you don't mind sharing, what were some of the conversations, what did some of the conversations look like between your agent or Saucony? Um, you know, a lot of those conversations happen between the agent and the shoe company and I'm not necessarily on the line for them, but you know, it just, we, we know what the market value for somebody who's done what I've done is. And, um, you know, they weren't anywhere close to it. And so it's like, you know, they're going to offer as much as they're comfortable offering and they have a budget and I understand that, but if they're not willing to meet me at that valuation based on you know, I know what other guys are making who have run 209, right? Okay. And I want to be commit, paid commiserately to them. And until someone steps up and does that, I'm not going to take a, a low ball contract. Mm-hmm. 
I I kind of remember something you posted on social media. Now, please correct me if I'm wrong, because it might not have been you. I follow a lot of runners on social media, but mm-hmm. I believe it was you posted something about how we should have um, athletes' salaries more public. Was that you? Yeah, um, I've definitely talked about that before. I, I don't know if I, I that was exactly my tweet that you're mentioning, but yeah. it, it sounds like something. <laughs> it sounds like something I, I would say, and I think you see that in other professional sports that you know that you know Patrick Mahomes or whatever signed a ten year. 500 million whatever dollar deal but in running those salary numbers are you know the only people who know them are the athlete the company Mm. and the agent and so I only know what other people are making because I ask and so but it's not you know a fan would never know unless somebody broadcasted it and a lot of times those numbers are protected by non-disclosure agreements which are you know legal legal mumbo jumbo in the contracts that prevents you from sharing that information but, you know, my opinion is that knowledge is power. And, you know, if we all know what each other are making, then we can all pursue our fair value um, mm-hmm. more smoothly. And so I would like to see that happen. I don't yes. know when it will. You, you mentioned earlier that Saucony made an offer that you didn't, you thought you were worth a little bit more. So how do you kind of calculate an, a runner's worth or how do you figure that out? Yeah, I mean that it's you you it's not an exact science. And so no mm-hmm. one no one has yeah. a specific formula, but to some extent it's performance based. And so you look, okay, my most recent race was the 20909 makes me tenth all time. And so like what what did those what were those athletes making? You know, who who was tenth best all time before me? What was he making? <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then you also there's also a social media component, like, do I have uh, a following and I do have a modest following I mean there's definitely runners who have a way bigger following but I have like an I have an audience um, I'm generally fairly marketable I think and so you kind of factor you put all those things into a blender and you kind of come up with a number based mm-hmm. on and that's also having an agent he represents other athletes he knows what they're making so he knows what I should be making and so mm-hmm. it's kind of uh, subjective but you know there's a way to get to a number Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you mentioned you recently ran 209 and it was the 10th fastest American time ever over the marathon. But what would you say to the people, maybe the the let's run nerds who are kind of saying like, oh, it's 209, but it, it was 209 on like a pancake flat course. Everything was like measured perfectly, you know, um, the conditions were perfect and you placed second. What would you say to those people? Uh, all those things are true. You know, we, uh, it was a perfectly fast course. It was, um, we did have good weather. We had great pacing. Um, and so, I mean, going into that race, I definitely identified that it's like, you know, one of probably just a handful of opportunities in my career to go and like really run as fast as possible without having anything to blame if I ran poorly. And so, uh, yeah, you can have great conditions, but I still moved my legs at 455 pace for 26 miles. And so like, we can, we can talk about things that made it easier. And, and that's definitely true. But like, you know, a lot of guys didn't run 209.09, you know, (laughs) and like, there have been good conditions in the past, and I still have run better than most people. And so, yeah, I mean, I took advantage of the day that I had. And so, uh, 
yeah i mean all those those if those are critiques they're correct but like you know i have a faster marathon or pr faster marathon pr than anybody who's making those arguments yeah so brands are beginning to value social media presence more and more when considering an athlete's value in my opinion yeah i mean in my opinion this is only going to increase with the future of social media and technology what's your opinion on this do you think it's good for the sport no um not in terms of athlete valuations um i i think that it's good that athletes have greater social media presences you know like when i was your age um it was hard for me to find running content you know there there was like some videos on flow track or whatever but you know no no runners had youtube channels that didn't mm -hmm. exist um instagram wasn't around at all um, and so, you know, I think kids now and fans now have access to athletes um, in a much, you know, more intimate way. And, you know, the knowledge base is, is way bigger. But I don't think that that's necessarily the way that sponsorship dollars need to be spent or just on social media influencers. I think to some extent that's hollow and short-sighted because performance should be what matters most. Mm -hmm. um being marketable is always going to be part of it i get that but i mean if it continues to go the way that it goes eventually no top 10 professional athletes are really going to be sponsored they're all just going to be social media influencers who have two million bots following them or whatever mm -hmm. and uh and so i i think you're right i think the trend is going to continue but i do think at some point uh it'll reset <laughs> you know i think it'll kind of build and then and then come back down to earth some. And so it'll be interesting to see how it goes. So you're saying it's not good for the sport and companies shouldn't do that, but at the same time, you think your value should increase because of your following. And you mentioned that previously when you're talking about Saucony um, or you rejecting Saucony's other offer. Right? I, I, think, I think having a following should be factored into contract offers. Okay. but I don't think it should be the primary factor. And I think performance opens the door. Like if you're not one of the best runners in the country, but you have a huge social media following, I don't necessarily think you deserve, um, you know, a professional contract. Mm -hmm. um, I think you have to have both. And like, I've always said like, yeah, I have a platform, but like performance gave me that platform, like performance built that, that platform. And so yeah, I think it would be, kind of sad for the sport if all the paid athletes are you know three hour marathoners you know who just have a million instagram followers and there's nothing wrong with three hour marathoners i'm not trying to imply that but i do think that the the pointy end of the performance spectrum should be rewarded mm -hmm. so kyle merber recently started a petition to help you get a sponsor uh kyle is a very good friend for this first of all can you talk about the support you've been you've recently gotten from fans or maybe your friends to help you get paid to run again? Yeah, and the, the position I thought was a really interesting idea. I mean, talking about we're talking about athlete valuations and I'm talking about how subjective it is. But the petition is interesting because, you know, hypothetically, if everybody who signed that bought a pair of shoes from a company, um, I mean, I think there were 700 or so people who ended up signing it. Shoes are like $120. Like that's a, re that's a real number mm -hmm. um, in terms of dollars. And so 
it is interesting to see that there are people like willing to spend money at a company because of who they sponsor. Cause I think a lot of people are like, athletes don't sell shoes. And it's like, well, athletes can sell shoes. And so anyway, that, I thought that was a really interesting thought experiment. And uh, you know, it was one of those days where you're just like, man, a lot of people are saying a lot of nice things about me on the internet today. You know, that's not always, that's not always the case. And so it felt really good. Um, you know, is it going to move the needle for me or really help my cause? Like, I don't know if brand managers are really paying attention to it, but uh, it was, it was reaffirming and like a nice thing to, to see. Well, I signed it. Oh, so thank you. <laughs> are you willing to share any new information on a potential new sponsor? Um, no, there's nothing quite solid enough yet to share. And so okay. these, these things are kind of nebulous until they're done. And so, yeah, it don't have to be a wait and see thing. All right. So moving on, you, you host the division three glory days podcast. Why, why did you initially start this podcast? It was, uh, it was my co-host Stu Newstat's idea. Um, we ran together at the paw. He was one year younger than me. And then, uh, you know, we've, we've been friends ever since, but maybe three years ago he called and he was going to start it and wanted to interview me as his first guest. Um, and I kind of was like, that's a great idea. Like, what if we hosted it together? Um, and in my mind, it was just like kind of a way to stay in touch. Like as you get older, it's harder and harder to stay in touch with friends from college or whatever. And I thought it would be a fun thing for us to do together. And it has been, it's been great. And it's been really interesting to talk to not only you know current division three athletes but also you know great athletes who came from division three um who had professional careers or did other things and so i'm learning a lot of stories you know that i hadn't heard before and just being able to stay in touch with that part of the sport um that i i hadn't really been in touch with um for a few years after i graduated and so it's been cool and the podcast has grown probably bigger than what I expected. I mean, you know, running is a niche and then division three running is like an even smaller niche. And so it's been cool to see the reception of the podcast and, you know, we've got plans to continue to grow it. So yeah, it's been a lot of fun. To somebody listening to your podcast, what do you hope for them to get out of listening to an episode? I think division three is unique because you know, and my story is an example. A lot of people went division three who weren't incredible runners in high school. They were very modest runners, average runners. So I guess you could look, but a lot of them went, you know, a lot of the stories we tell are people like that who were 440 milers in high school, which is good, but it's not like elite. And then by the time they were done with division three, they, they developed into, you know, a national champion caliber runner or some people we talked to weren't even recruited. They like the coach found them in the, in the gym on the treadmill and they were like, Hey, you should come out to practice. And then three years later, they win the track 10 K. I mean, it's just like <laughs> stories like that are wild. Right. But mm-hmm. that, but that's my story. Like, <laughs> you know, like I, I believe it's possible because I, I did it. And so I think it's inspiring to see those stories of development. Cause I think as runners, a lot of times we look at how good we are right now or what we're doing now. And it's like, you know, in high school, it's like, man, I barely broke some, I barely broke five minutes for the mile. Like, how could I ever break 15 for 5k or whatever? Um, but the people we talked to just, they just kept going until they got better. Um, 
which is really cool. And so I hope people hear those stories and like kind of see that it is possible to continue to improve and like a timeline that's right for you and not a timeline that everyone else has to adhere to. Or there are other, there are other avenues to get better than just like D1 or nothing or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. What's one of, who's one of the favorite guests you've had on your podcast and why? We've had a lot of, a lot of good ones. Um, so th- this may be kind of a cop out, but we, we did a series with um, the SUNY Cortland women's team. They were, uh, they won like six championships over 10 years or something. And we talked to like nine athletes who were there over that decade about how they, you know, built the program about how, you know, the program plateaued just winning nationals every year and eventually how it kind of came down the other side. And, and that was really interesting to just kind of get behind the scenes of the team and just be like, okay, what does it take to like build a dynasty and what's it like to be at the peak of the dynasty and what's it like to be the, the guy or the, the woman on the team who like watches that dynasty kind of fall. Um, and so that's, that, that was a three-part series we did. That was really interesting um but yeah we've talked to a lot of great a lot of great people uh, our first episode was will lear who's a friend of mine now but it was big uh you know d3 legend just u.s distance running legend and uh you know definitely somebody i kind of fanboyed over and so it was cool to get him for our like first episode what do you think are some of the big differences between division three and maybe division one I? I think it kind of depends you know if we're talking yeah. like if we're talking like major D1, it's like, is there a difference between DePauw and Oregon? Like, <laughs> absolutely. You know, but is there a difference between, is there a diff- really a difference between a, you know, a medium-sized Division three program and like a really small Division one program? I think those mm-hmm. are probably like pretty similar. But I mean, the main thing is like, no one is on athletic scholarship at Division three. Like there are none. And so everyone is there purely because they want to be there. You know, at my school, we we had to buy our own shoes. We had to turn the uniforms in at the end of the year. Um, you know, it was a very like blue collar existence for a collegiate runner, but at the same time, I didn't know any different. And so it never bothered me. Mm-hmm. Who do you think would be a good, like what type of person do you think would be a better fit for division three as opposed to division one? And that's kind of a hard question to answer because I know you don't have much experience with division one running, but from maybe from what you've heard. I mean, to put my own experience into it a little bit, like I think division three is, is a great choice for runners who want to continue developing kind of at their own pace, I guess. I think a lot of division one programs kind of have the philosophy of like, okay, we're going to get 10 really good guys every year. And then we're going to crank them all up to, 85, 100 miles a week. And then the two that survive are going to be like our varsity contributors. Right. And, and that's, and that's a, that's a sound philosophy. I mean, you're going to build a great team that way, but a lot, there's going to be a lot of collateral damage of guys who just don't make it. And I think in division three, at least in a lot of programs and it varies by program, but you know, you're brought along at a more gentle pace, like performance is important, but it's not like the most important thing. And so, you know, I was running 40 miles a week, my freshman year, and I was running 70 miles a week, my senior year, like I, I, I progressed very slowly and in a way that made sense. And there was no, there wasn't a lot of external pressure to like fight for a spot on the team or whatever. Like, 
And so it was just a relaxed atmosphere. I think, I think division one just by nature can be a little higher pressure. And so, which can work for some athletes. It just depends. Mm-hmm. So now I'm going to move on to, I looked up your name on let's run and I'm just oh, going to read, I'm just going <laughs> to don't, don't take these seriously at all, but I'm just going to read a couple <laughs> yeah. things I read and I just want you to respond to the, to them how you want. You don't even have to, if you want, you could just say pass if it, you don't want to respond at all, but mm -hmm. okay. Number one, it's all about selling shoes. Marathon times don't matter much. All these athletes are just out there to sell shoes and social media. Yeah. I mean, this is kind of gets into the conversation that we were having uh, Mm -hmm. earlier a little bit. I mean, it's like, yeah, it's hard to draw a line directly from somebody's marathon performance to a shoe being sold somewhere. Um, but I don't think that's the only part of sponsorship that matters is like somebody buying shoes. I think it's like, like, for example, I ran that race in Saucony's carbon shoe and people might before that might've been like, yeah, they're good, but are they like competitive with Nikes or whatever? And it's like, Mm -hmm. well, I ran the 10th fastest all time in Saucony shoes. Like that legitimizes the brand and legitimizes the product and maybe doesn't directly result in a sale immediately, but it might in the future. And so, you know, part, it's not just direct sales. It's like brand recognition and, and legitimizing products, um, which down the road hopefully results in sales, but that's kind of how I view the sponsorship model. Mm-hmm. Okay. So number two, I think Noah is one of the more compelling people in the sport and seems much more accessible than other athletes. Wow. That's really nice. I'm glad you, I'm glad you picked some of the nice stuff to, <laughs> to read. Um, the next one's mean. <laughs> yeah. Okay, great. Um, you know, I, I try to be accessible. Like I try to be honest with the way that I'm thinking and feeling. Um, and I try to put that onto my social media channels as much as is appropriate and possible. Like, I follow a lot of runners and I think um, a lot of runners I, I respect and that I like as people, but sometimes it's just like, Oh, crush this workout today. Or like, you know, you kind of play the comparison game with that and you don't really know about their struggles. You only see their triumphs. And I feel like that's a problem in social media in general is that like people tend to highlight the good and diminish the bad. And so I try to be pretty even even keel with the image I portray. I try to be honest. I try to be authentic because anything else feels a little uh, icky to me, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you just mentioned that sometimes athletes might not share all the bad stuff or the struggles, but what if they aren't sharing any of the struggles because they don't want to seem like they're making excuses? Like if if an athlete posts like, oh, my Achilles has been acting up for, you know, two weeks I don't know if I'm gonna race good and then it's just kind of like an excuse to have a poor performance what do you think about that it depends on the athlete I guess I mean I think I would probably respect somebody more if they share that information it's like okay they're being vulnerable like their Achilles hurts um I mean it depends on the athlete if you're using that as I mean they're like listen there aren't going to be that many professional athletes who are looking for excuses yeah. Like at the professional level, like at this point in our lives, we're all very motivated to run mm-hmm. well and we're not looking for ways to get out of it. <laughs> you know, yeah. the way, like the kid who's the kid in high school, who's like 
faking a hamstring pull to get out of the four by four or something (laughs) that that doesn't happen at the professional level I don't think and so but there are some athletes who like the way they perform best is to not is to portray strength right and Mm -hmm. any weakness just doesn't work well for them and that's cool I get that I understand that it's just not what feels um authentic to me because like I've had Achilles issues for three years I've been pretty upfront about it but like um you know, I'm still going to run my best and, yeah. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, and I know recently you've, or recently ish, uh, you missed the marathon trials back in 2020 mm-hmm. with due to injury. Just talk about that a little bit. Yeah, that, that was super hard because, um, so the marathon trials were in February, the October prior to that, um, I ran 211.48 or something, 46 at the Chicago marathon. And so I definitely, after that performance, that was my, that was my best marathon to date. I was like, okay, you know, I'm at least in the wider conversation where on like my best day, I could be competitive to make the U S Olympic team. And, you know, that was really motivating for me. Cause like, yeah, on a great day, I could be fighting for top five. I could be t- fighting for top three. And all I wanted was a chance to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just, I had a knee thing that just would not go away. And I just wasn't able to do the training. Like I wouldn't have been ready for the marathon. And so I went to watch and my, my fiance now uh, was running in the women's race. And so I was there, it was really hard, you know, just to feel like I was missing out and to, to see those guys that I'm competitive with and just be like, man, I know, I know I could have been up there with them. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that was the reality of my situation. It was what it was. And that, that gave me extra motivation for the marathon project in December to come out and be like, okay, like I'm one of the best guys too. Um, you know, that was kind of like my Olympic trials in my mind. Mm-hmm. Will, we be, will we be watching you in the 2024 Olympic marathon trials, hopefully? I hope so. Yeah, I, I'll be 34 at that point, which I think in, in marathon time, that's, you know, probably just a little bit beyond my peak but I'll still be pretty good at that Mm -hmm. point and so and you know I didn't run 100 miles a week until two years ago like I think I have a lot of mileage left on my legs in a way that a lot of my competitors maybe don't who have been training a lot harder Uh um, than me earlier in their life so I'm hoping I get to 34 like still feeling really good like and just have four more years of really high level training and I think if you're in that top 20 guys in the country, you know, anybody who shows up that day, you roll the dice and just, you know, somebody's going to make the team who you didn't expect. And mm-hmm. uh, I don't see any reason why that can't be me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Like, like uh, Jacob Riley, who got second, what yeah. do you think, what was your reaction to that performance? Um, I know Jake. Um, and so like, and he'd run so well in, in Chicago that same day that I was there. And so I mean, that's a guy who is a very high level performer, but whose career was basically like essentially ended for a while with injuries. I mean, he had surgery on his Achilles, like, like I was, I watched his comeback, like it was an improbable comeback. You know, he's such an amazing story. You should have him on your podcast. Um, Mm -hmm. But he, he basically built himself up from absolutely nothing and was just running with a fire that I don't think many other guys had. And so you know, was I surprised that he made the team? Yeah, probably. He would, he wouldn't be a guy that you'd pick on paper necessarily, but I wasn't like shocked. I I figured like, 
once he got into the top five, I knew how bad he wanted it. And I knew what a competitor he was. It's just like, mm-hmm. okay, this guy's, you know, this yeah. guy's feel, feeling it today, you know? Yeah. I, I remember the day before the, mar- the marathon trials, I watched the interview Let's Run did with him. And I was like, and then I, I watched the interview and I was like, wow, if this guy, this guy's being so, you know, speaking so relaxed about everything he's been through. So then I looked him up a little bit more and I actually looked about, and I actually like found out everything he's gone through. And I'm like, wow, this guy really went through it. Like, I don't know. I don't know if I'd still be running if I went through what he went through. And then, you know, the next day he got second and that was just like so inspiring, like, especially for me at the time I was injured. So that was really awesome to see. Yeah. I don't think he got enough attention for that. I think he deserved, I mean, he was just such a great story. He's a great Mm -hmm. dude. So yeah, Mm -hmm. I'm really happy for him. And then now he has a sponsor. Yeah. He signed with on um, a few months after that, which is great. I mean, yeah, he's a great dude. He deserved it for sure. Okay. Number three, the mean one. Yeah. The mean one. (laughs) He's a long-haired, unkept, one-dimensional athlete that is not even remotely recognizable. I mean, seriously, if you are going to pay someone to sell shoes, it's going to be someone attractive and appealing to the masses. If he is Carissa or Quigley, you are hitting a massive cross-section of customers that, that will actually pay attention to the commercial or event. Yeah, I mean, okay, so there's a, I mean, there's truth in that for sure. Like, uh, you know, like I already talked about how running is kind of a niche sport, right? and I'm a niche figure in a niche sport, I guess, you know, like I have 15,000 Instagram followers and Colleen quickly has like 250,000 or whatever. Um, and so it just depends on what the brand is looking for. Like, am I, am I unkempt? Like, no, like, <laughs> I mean, like <laughs> I have an apartment with my fiance and our dogs and I take showers and lead a normal life. It's like, I'm not a, like, it's not like I'm a vagabond or whatever but uh you know am i am i scratching the itch of mainstream america to buy shoes like i don't, I don't know if that's true yeah I, I saw one on there that, that was super mean and i was like i don't know i don't want to like have this guy hate me anymore so no it was no, about I, it was I've... about you like not taking showers and about you how you <laughs> Oh, you have to live off your uh, fiance's salary and stuff. Oh, teacher's but... her teacher salary. Yeah, yeah. yeah I saw that one. Yeah, <laughs> which yeah, I mean, I can laugh at all this stuff because these people don't know me and they're just kind of jumping to conclusions and making stuff up. But I will say, I don't understand why people are mean on the internet. You know, like I can laugh about it, but like it is mm-hmm. mean, right? And some people you... might not have the same sense of humor. Do you see all the? Uh meme accounts on instagram like that are like you don't know you don't know who created them at all but they're like tin can elite or you know split mile or stuff like that i i have i have looked at something like that in the past it's not something that i like keep an eye on Uh at all because like again i don't understand why people are just being mean to be mean Mm -hmm. and and some of it i guess is funny but there's like the thing about being mean on the internet is there's always a real person behind the keyboard or behind their phone who's going to read that and might be hurt by it and so yeah like i can i can find some of that stuff on let's run funny or some of those memes things funny i guess but i still like don't approve of people writing shit like that you know uh-huh. absolutely 
Well, let's end on that. Noah, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the podcast. To all the listeners, you can find Noah's Instagram and Twitter in the description, as well as his podcast, if you'd like to check that out, uh, as well as the petition, if you'd like to sign that. And lastly, if you're still listening, I'd greatly appreciate if you can take a second to leave a review or subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on. Thanks again for listening and peace.